0: Courtney and I are going to be reading three passages from the New Testament. Um, before before we start that reading, I just wanted to share something briefly that just uh, I felt the Spirit really prompting me to during worship, and that was um, last night as midnight rolled around. Courtney and I found ourselves reflecting on on life, not so much just the past year, but on life, and and we were talking about the concept of like living in this space that um, that is that is is God's space, like whether it's His temple or His sanctuary, His house is whatever the Bible calls it and the Bible calls it lots lots of different places and, and we were just talking about like no matter where life takes us in two thousand twelve, like we have to continually remind ourselves and find ourselves living in that place. And that place is is a place of protection and a place of love and grace and, and really it's a great place, even though it might be in the midst of a lot of chaos and a lot of broken things going on in the world or in our life or relationships that we have. And and then when we came in this morning we sang, better is one day in your courts, and it just, you know, impressed upon me, like, for all of us, that, that we need to live in that place. And uh, the first passage that, that I will be reading this morning also um, reflects on that, of being in that place with God. So I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 3, um, starting in verse 1. Colossians 3, 1 to 11. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, uh, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us.
1: And I'll be reading Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. With the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. "'Their minds are full of darkness. "'They wander far from the life God gives "'because they have closed their minds "'and hardened their hearts against him. "'They have no sense of shame. "'They live for lustful pleasure "'and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. "'But that isn't what you learned about Christ. "'Since you have heard about Jesus "'and have learned the truth that comes from him, "'throw off your old sinful nature "'and your former way of life, "'which is corrupted by lust and deception.' Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy.
0: Mark 2, 18-22. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, Why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples? And the Pharisees do. Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving it an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst. The wineskins and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls
2: for new wineskins. The word of the Lord. So one thing you can hear in those uh, passages is our, is our theme, our topic for the day, um, which is newness. Um, It's interesting that we say happy new year because we've been doing years for a long time. Um, You know, I mean, the, the concept of a year isn't new at all. In fact, it's very old. Um, And the question of like whose year, you know, is also a key question because different calendars run different ways according to different traditions. Um, You know, I mean, the, the, China doesn't think this is the new year, you know. But but we do, and and so like, the, if if it's if it's new, that means it's important generally. The pr- here's the principle we're going to be looking at today: humans love newness, but hate change. Humans love newness, but hate change. And the passages that Matt and Courtney just read for us, there was lots of new stuff in there, a new life a renewed mind, new wineskins, new cloth, new life, new life in Christ, Christ's life renewed upon us. I mean, there's all kinds of newness in Scripture that oftentimes, uh, I think, catches us off guard. And it, newness is is a thing that I think that we sort of get, we've gotten used to, you know, we because particularly as Americans, like, we get a whole lot more new stuff than anybody else does. Um, we, we 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 revel in new stuff, you know, and and most of the rest of the world is concept of of, of newness. If you look at it from just a purely percentages standpoint, um, you know, it, there isn't a lot of newness there. There's, there's a lot of old stuff that you keep making work, you know, and uh, and and so newness for us becomes a, an, an intriguing concept in my mind. And That whole idea of happy new year—that's what we're going to be talking about. Emphasis on emphasis on new. And uh, we're going to do it from a lot of different vantage points and venues. There's going to be a lot of Scripture reading, and the Scripture reading that you're going to hear is going to be long. Um, so so stay in it, all right? So, like, listen. Listen actively to what God is, is saying. Um, there's going to be media that's going to be teaching us through the time. I'm, I'm going to bring a word um you were given a sheet uh, this morning on your way in with your bulletins um, with some prayers on them. I'll be talking about that as as that comes up. Um, so this is, this service is sort of just meant to sort of flow and, and vibe and 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 just sort of walk us through a thematic concept of newness from some different perspectives, from God's perspectives, from our perspective, and what it means for us to get God's perspective on newness. So everybody got that? Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to I'm going to bless us in, in in that endeavor. All right, God, thank you for uh, for who you are. Thank you for the fact um, that you reign supreme over all. There is really, there's nothing new to you, but you're a God that revels in newness and, and in making things new. And, um, and that's, that's a wild thought. You have always been, you are, and you always will be. You know, so newness for you is a very foreign thing. But yet you delight in giving your children newness. You delight in calling us into newness. It just needs to be your newness. And it's today that we want to receive those things from you, like your definitions, your ways, your concepts, what it is that that you're doing, uh, your, your activity in our world, your giving to us, your gifts, your word. So we submit ourselves to you. Teach us today, God. Um, through all the variety of things that we engage this morning together. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: I'm going to read a story this morning from Numbers chapter 16. The title of the story is Korah's Rebellion. Korah, son of Izhar, from the Levite clan of Koath, rebelled against the leaders, leadership of Moses. He was joined by three members of the tribe of Reuben, Dathan, Abiram, and the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, and by 250 other Israelites, well-known leaders chosen by the community. They assembled before Moses and Aaron and said to them, "'You have gone too far. All the members of the community belong to the Lord, and the Lord is with all of us. Why then, Moses, do you set yourself above the Lord's community?' When Moses heard this, he threw himself on the ground and prayed. Then he said to Korah and his followers, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show, who, show us who belongs to him. He will let the one who belongs to him, that is, the one who has chosen, approach him at the altar. Tomorrow morning you and your followers take fire pans, put live coals and incense on them, and take them to the altar. Then, will we, then we will see who, the, who of us the Lord has chosen. You Levites are the ones who have gone too far. Listen, you Levites, do you consider it a small matter that the God of Israel has set set you apart from the rest of the community so that you can approach him, perform your service in the Lord's tabernacle, and minister to the community and serve them? He has let you and all the other Levites have this honor, and now you're trying to get the priesthood too? When you complain against Aaron, it is really against the Lord that you and your followers are rebelling. Then Moses sent for Dathan and Abraham, and they said, We will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out of the fertile land of Egypt to kill us here in the wilderness? Do you also have to lord it over us? You certainly have not brought us into a fertile land or given us fields and vineyards as our possession, and now you are trying to deceive us. We will not come. Moses became angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept any offerings these men bring. I have not wronged any of them. I have not even taken one of their donkeys. Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and your 250 followers must come to the tabernacle of the Lord's presence. Aaron will also be there. Each of you will take his firepan, put incense on it, and then present it at the altar. So they took their firepans, put live coals and incense on them, and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah gathered the whole community And they stood facing Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent. Suddenly, the dazzling light of the Lord's presence appeared to the whole community. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Move back from these people, and I will destroy them immediately. But Moses and Aaron bowed down with their faces to the ground and said, O God, you are the source of all life. When one of us sins, do you become angry with the whole community? The Lord said to Moses, Tell the people to move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. Then Moses, accompanied by the leaders of Israel, went to Dathan and Abraham and said to the people, Get away from the tents of these wicked men and don't touch anything that belongs to them. Otherwise, you will be wiped out with them for all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham. Dathan and Abraham had come out and were standing at the entrance of their tents with their wives and children And Moses said to the people, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do these things. Then it's not my own choice that I have done them. If these men die a natural death without some punishment from God, then the Lord did not send me. But if the Lord does something unheard of, and the earth opens up and swallows them with with all that they own, so that they will go down alive into the world of the dead, you will know that these men have rejected the Lord." As soon as he had finished speaking, the ground under Dathan and Abraham split open and swallowed them and their families, together with all of Korah's followers and their possessions. So they went down alive to the world of the dead with their possessions. The earth closed over them, and they vanished. All the people of Israel who were were there fled when they heard the, the cry, and they shouted, Run, the earth might swallow us too. Then the Lord sent a fire that blazed out and burned up the 250 men who had presented the incense. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the fire bronze pans from the remains of those who have been burned and scatter the coals from the fire pans somewhere else because the fire pans are holy. They became holy when they were presented at the Lord's altar. So take the fire pans of these who were put to death for their sin Beat them into thin plates and make a covering for the altar. It will be a warning to the people of Israel. So Eleazar the priest took the fire pans and had them beaten into thin plates to make a covering for the altar. This was a warning to the Israelites that no one who was not a descendant of Aaron should come to the altar to burn incense for the Lord. Otherwise he would be destroyed like Korah and his men. All this was done as the Lord had commanded Eleazar through Moses. The next day, the whole community complained against Moses and Aaron and said, You have killed some of the Lord's people. After they had all gathered to protest Moses and Aaron, they turned toward the tabernacle and saw that the cloud was covering it and that the dazzling light of the Lord's presence had appeared. Moses and Aaron went and stood in front of the tent, and the Lord said to Moses, Move back from these people, and I will destroy them on the spot. The two of them bowed down with their faces to the ground, And Moses said to Aaron, Take your fire pan, put live coals from the altar in it, put some incense on the coals, then hurry with it to the people and perform the ritual of purification for them. Hurry! The Lord's anger had already broken out and an epidemic has already begun. Aaron obeyed and took his fire pan and ran into the middle of the assembled people. When he saw that the plague had already begun, he put the incense on the coals and performed the ritual of purification for the people stopped the plague and he was left standing between the living and the dead the number of people who died was 14700 not counting those who had died in Korah's rebellion when the plague had stopped Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent
1: I'm reading Ezekiel 37 The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me all around among the bones that covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground and were completely dried out. Then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living people again? O Sovereign Lord, I replied, You alone know the answer to that. Then he said to me, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say, dry bones, listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I am going to put breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I spoke this message just as he told me. Suddenly, as I spoke, there was a rattling noise all across the valley. The bones of each body came together and attached themselves as complete skeletons. Then, as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones. Then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they still had no breath in them. Then he said to me, Speak a prophetic message to the winds, son of man. Speak a prophetic message and say, This is what the sovereign Lord says Come, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they may live again. So I spoke the message as he commanded me, and breath came into their bodies. They all came to life and stood up on their feet, a great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, We have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Our nation is finished. Therefore, prophesy to them and say, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live again and return home to your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done what I said. Yes, the Lord has spoken.
2: It's a strange paradox with, with we humans. We love newness, but hate change. How does that work? On this day that we declare Happy New Year to one another, what exactly does that mean? Is it new? What is new about it? And most of all, does it matter if it's new? Love newness and hate change. We can see it in ourselves in the craziest, most mundane things. New shoes. They just feel good. At the same time, I learned the old shoes well. They, they knew me and loved me. We had a good relationship built on mutual trust and good communication. But I have new shoes, and I like the way that they feel. New furniture. It's exciting. It gives a whole new feel and look to the space. But the old furniture received our posterior so lovingly. And how many lovely naps have we taken thereupon? We watch wistfully as it sits out for the garbageman to take away. Other new things are not so enjoyable as new shoes and new furniture. Walking new roads of experience that we've never walked before. Oftentimes these new roads are paths of pain, leading us into situations that we did not ask for and do not want. Beginning and growing in new relationships. Those things are awkward, And distancing, testing our will to love and be patient. Opening new doors in existing relationships. Is it worth it? Do we push into new things together with Christ or keep doing what we've always done and thus risk being what we've always been? And this is why we love routine. Routine becomes a part of the way we do life, particularly as Americans. Routine is safe. routine allows us to know what to expect. This is fine when it comes to certain things like paying the bills, mowing the lawn, or changing the oil in the car. But what happens when key things become routine? What happens when relationships become routine? Are we even aware that our relationships are becoming routine? Can we see that? Or do we only notice it once the relationship breaks and we are left wondering what in the world happened? Worse yet, how destructive to allow our relationship with God to become routine. Then things between us and him get old and divided, and eventually they break too, but not because of him. Rhythm is good. Routine is dangerous. Rhythm is part of rest. Rest is moving at the same pace as God. God is not a routine God. God is a rhythmic God. God is not a pedal-to-the-metal kind of God. He is unhurried and separate, completely outside of time. Jesus never hurried to do anything. He moved and went and did exactly what his father asked him to do when his father asked him to do it. There were thousands of people in the nation of Israel who never saw him or were healed by him. Jesus was never constricted by time. Urgency was not his call. He never worried about what to do next. He just moved in rhythm with God, listening. And God is all about newness in his rhythms. And not the Happy New Year kind of newness. Happy New Year easily becomes part of routine. 364 days have gone by. It's a new year. 364 days have gone by. It's a new year. But is it really all that new? And who says it's new? Who defines what's new? Can we define what's new? It's January 1st. Happy New Year. The question is not what season or day is it, or have 364 days gone by. Rather, it is this, what is God's rhythm, and how do we join it? The problem in this situation is that we love newness, but hate change. It would be easy to say that we love newness and hate change because we are fickle people who are not rightly satisfied. That may very well be true, but it also smacks of shame. Perhaps there's another way to think about it. Uh, On my sabbatical, I read a book that changed the way I thought about a lot of stuff. Uh, I actually read four books by Henri Nouwen, and um, if you've never read anything by Henri Nouwen, you should read everything by Henri Nouwen, um, starting with The Return of the Prodigal Son and Finding My Way Home. Um, This is four essays that he never meant to have published, which... I don't know ethically if that's okay, but uh, they got published, um, and I'm really glad they did because uh, all those little yellow flags are like poignant things that the Lord spoke to me by through this book uh, for my sabbatical. This was like the 67th book of the Bible to me. Um, not really, though. I just that was just a statement of of emphasis. Um, so I'd like to read piece of an essay to you this morning, by honor that um, God really spoke to me through. This essay is called uh, The Path of Living and Dying. Now remember, the theme here is a newness. Now we're going to talk about death. When we think about death, we think most often about where we are going, where we will finally end up, what there is, if anything, to look forward to. What I read as I read Scripture, what I appreciate as I read Scripture is that Jesus saw death, and his own death in particular, as more than a way of getting from one place to another. He saw his death as potentially fruitful in and of itself and of enormous benefit to his disciples. Death was not an ending for him, but a passage to something much greater. When Jesus was anticipating his own death, he kept repeating the same thing to his disciples. My death is good for you, because my death will bear many fruits beyond my death. When I die, I will not leave you alone, but I will send you my spirit, the paraclete, the counselor. And my spirit will reveal to you who I am and what I am teaching you. My spirit will lead you into the truth and will allow you to have a relationship with me that was not possible before my death. My spirit will help you to form community and grow in strength. Jesus sees that the real fruits of his life will mature after he dies. That is why he adds, it is good for you that I go. If that is true, then the real question for me as I consider dying is not how much can I still accomplish before I die, or will I be a burden to others? No, the real question is how can I live so that death will be fruitful for others? In other words, how can my death be a gift for my loved ones so that they can reap the fruits of my life after I have died? This question can be answered only if I am first willing to admit Jesus vision of death as a valid possibility for me. And then he completely turns like the tables just interjects this incredible passage. There was that voice, that incredible voice. You are my beloved son and on you my favor rests. That's the voice at the Jordan River, where Jesus heard and believed that he was the beloved of God on whom God's favor rests. It was as the beloved that Jesus lived his life, even in front of the demon. The evil spirit said to him, Prove that you are the beloved by changing stones into bread and becoming relevant. Prove that you are the beloved by becoming spectacular and throwing yourself down from the temple to be saved by God's angels. You'll be in the news and on TV so everyone can see how wonderful you are. Prove that you are the beloved by having power and influence so you can control the situation. But Jesus answered, I don't have to prove anything. I am the beloved because that's what I heard in the Jordan River. I know that I'm the beloved. I have heard these words, you are my beloved. You are my beloved. Jesus believed the words, and he knew who he was. He lived his life as the beloved of God. His spirit was imbued with love of God, and Jesus died well because he knew he was going to God, and he would soon send his spirit of love to his friends. It is good for you that I leave, he said, because unless I leave, I cannot send my spirit, who will lead you to the full communion, full truth, the full betrothal. With that Holy Spirit, he knew that his beloved disciples would live better lives. This vision is not just about Jesus. It is also about you and me. Jesus came to share his identity with you and to tell you that you are the beloved sons and daughters of God. Just for a moment, try to enter this enormous mystery that you, like Jesus, are the beloved daughter or the beloved son of God. This is the truth. Furthermore, your belovedness preceded your birth. You were the beloved before your father, mother, brother, sister or church loved you or hurt you. You are the beloved because you belong to God from all eternity. God loved you before you were born and God will love you after you die. In scripture says, I have loved you. In scripture God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is a very fundamental truth of your identity. This is who you are whether you feel it or not. You belong to God from eternity to eternity. Life is an opportunity To speak to God again, I love you as well. If you dare to believe that you are the beloved before you are born, you may suddenly realize that your life is very, very unique. You become conscious that you were sent here just for a short time, for 20, 40, 80 years, to discover and believe that you are a beloved child of God. The length of time is not what matters. You are sent into this world to believe in yourself as God's chosen one and then to help your brothers and sisters know that they are also beloved sons and daughters of God who belong together. You are sent into this world to be a people of reconciliation. You are sent to heal, to break down walls. Before all the distinctions, the separations, and the walls built on foundations of fear, there was unity in God's heart and mind. Out of that unity, you are sent into this world for a little while to claim that you and every other human being belong to the same God, the same God who loves us and lives from eternity to eternity and loves with an eternal love. In this world, when you are chosen, you know that someone else is not chosen. When you are the best, you know that someone else is not the best. When you win and receive a prize, you know there is someone who lost. But this is not so in the heart of God. If you are chosen in the heart of God, you have eyes to see the chosenness of others. If the love of God blesses you, you have eyes to see the blessedness of others. The mystery of God's wonderful love is that you come with it into the world and it blesses you whether you know it or not. Your life is in God's universal embrace of the whole human family. So if you look with eyes of faith, you discover that you belong to God's sacred family. You are son or daughter. You are brother or sister. You are father or mother in the most deeply spiritual way. This small life that we live brings everything together by God's love. And without reading the whole rest of the thing, he goes on to take his writings about Jesus' physical death and about writing about what it means for you and I to see our physical death the way that God does, to God's call to us to spiritually die. And when we think of God's concepts of spiritual death, I think that now we're starting to get somewhere when it comes to understanding newness. One of the most difficult things about the Christian life is learning to embrace death. It is one of the most counterintuitive concepts that God requires of his children, and it is the principal call of God upon his own son. Jesus' great life, which only birthed life for others through discipleship, healing, walking, teaching, listening, anointing, preaching, confronting, loving, all of that great life he lived and was capable of continuing to live, culminated in this call from his father. Now embrace death. This provides for us a chief clue as to why we love newness but hate change. Newness requires death. God has made us new and is making us new and will continue to make us new. The question is, will we be in rhythm of his work of newness in our lives? In plain words, will we die when he tells us to die? And will we die too what he asks us to sacrifice. This is a key question because our routines usually guard us from the death that is required for newness. And so we keep doing what we've always done and then wonder why we are who we have always been. Why we keep having the same fight with our spouse. Why we keep dealing with the same issues with our kids. Why we keep those certain parts of our hearts closed to our friends why we pull the plug on that dream, why we never have time to accomplish that goal. It's because our routine dictated ourselves to us when God desires his rhythms to dictate his design for us. But make no mistake about it, his rhythms will, will require you to, to die. And so this is the role of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see, and we cannot see the other side of a death. But, do you want to make sense of your life? Then die when God commands. You want to be fulfilled? Die. Would you like to grow as a person? Then listen for God's call to embrace death. Do you want your relationships to move forward? Death is the key. We love newness, but we hate change. It's starting to make sense if we think logically about it. Death is an end, and who wants things to come to an end? But the thing is, is God's not logical. God is supra-logical. God refuses to let death win. So much so that he sent his son to die and forever conquer sin, death, and the grave which he accomplished perfectly in his death on the cross. In God's government, death is not an end. It is always a beginning. Death always breeds life, and the life that it breeds is always better. Like I said, he is super logical. In God's power, death always breeds resurrection. God literally says to us, his children, die so that you may live. And the life that I give, he says, it's life worth having. Life that is so great that if you knew it was buried in a field, you should sell everything you have and go buy that field in order to have it. It's life that is so fulfilling that if you knew it was hidden in your house, you should call all of your friends together and work unendingly ripping the walls down until you find it. It's life that's so rewarding that if it were a pearl in a jeweler's shop, you should sell everything you own to go buy that pearl, no matter what it costs you. This is the life that God offers through the gateway of death that he calls us to. There's a lot of people in this room today who could testify to this truth. Moving in God's rhythm, requiring my death in this situation, fill in the blank, left me with more life than I had before. It was not easy, and I would not ask for it again, but I am glad and possibly even becoming thankful for it. But we generally put on the brakes when it comes to death. Rather than embracing death, we choose to stay sick. And the sickness becomes our routine. And our routine dictates our unhealth. And our unhealth keeps us moving in cycles, particularly relational cycles, that we just can't seem to get over or to get past, or to have victory in. And it's because what God is calling us to is here. And our routine wants to keep us here. But he will not settle for less than us being here. Because it is only by walking through what he calls us to die to that he can birth resurrection life in us. And this is newness. This is what it means for God to make all things new. When we embrace the death, the sacrifice that God calls us to, no matter what it is, his life always breathes into us more than what we could have known. In God's way of doing things, death equals resurrection. He will never allow you to be conquered. You are his beloved. He will never give room for your defeat. You are his beloved. No weapon formed against you will prosper. You are his beloved. He is your God. You are his child. You are his beloved. He is your fortress. He is your active protector. You are his beloved. God does not sadistically look down on you and say, now die to that. God lovingly walks you to the good destiny that he has for you. And that requires us walking through the passageways of death and sacrifice to which he calls us. So that we might have newness, true newness, real life, apart from all the other things, the routine that keeps us down. His call to die is rooted in his goodness. His call for us to be living sacrifices comes from a heart that wells up with love when he looks down on us. To repeat again the word of the Lord that we've already heard once this morning. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Again, this is all anti-routine stuff. Right? Your routine is down here. God's rhythm is up there. Set your mind there. Be there. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you too will appear with him in glory. So put away these things, and listen to the routines in this. Listen to the routines that we get stuck in. Listen to those cycles in this. in these verses. Put to death these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You once walked in them when you were living in them, but now you must put them away altogether. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." The new life that God gives is a new life of process. Grammatically speaking here, what we're looking at is a present participle with continuing results. That means that you're always in it. You are being renewed by God. And when I just said that 10 seconds ago, you're now being renewed in a new way right now from the 10 seconds ago that I just said that other statement about being new. Like, that, this is how present God is. This is how, like, with you and, and in you and on you he is and how much he loves being with you and how much he loves you deeply. That God never says this. God never says, go die to that. I'm going to watch. God always says, let's walk together because he has walked the ultimate death. He has walked the ultimate sacrifice. And for him to replay that time and again is what it means for us to be washed in the blood of his son, which we continually are. And we are being renewed to the image of our creator. This is God's plan for us, and that is newness. So, happy new year. Seriously, happy new year. And maybe on May 7th, Based on the rhythm of God, I'll say Happy New Year again, you know, because that's where God's heart is, you know, in that spot. You know, call somebody on a random day and say, Happy New Year, because God's rhythm is at work in you when you see it. May this year be filled with the rhythm of God. May the drumbeat of his heart overtake you and fill you with life as you embrace embrace the death to which he has called you, and so experience his life in life that he calls abundant.